Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 184. Today is May 1st, 2016. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder, money manager, at investablewealth.com. Well, here we are at the beginning of May with the first four months of the year behind us. We opened up this year with one of the worst performers in history. We had a double bottom where the markets were down 10, 11% or so with a bottom in January. And then that bottom was exceeded in February. The markets came on with the strong vengeance after about February 11th. Commodity prices and especially energy prices, petroleum prices, have recovered some 60% from the bottoms that we saw at the beginning of the year. Is all that over? Well, I'm not so sure. Well, we're going to touch on that in today's episode, but really the point of today's podcast is to give you a market review. I've been promising that for some time. Thanks to those of you that keep prodding me along. I do appreciate those of you that try and keep me on track. We are going to drill down today. We're going to talk about the overall U.S. economy broadly, and then we're also going to drill down and talk about some specific sectors. We'll talk about some specific stocks. Before we get started on that, I do want to point out that on Friday, I did close out both my long position in the U.S. dollar and also my short position on gold. I announced that over at investablewealth.com in the form of a blog post. That's always how I update my trades. I did do that before the market closed on Friday for any of you that are kind of following the things that I do. So if you want to make sure that you're getting the most timely notices of when I'm moving in and out of things, do sign up for the blog post updates over at investablewealth.com. You won't get junk mail. You won't get spammed. The only time you'll receive an email is when I release a new article on the blog site there. So any of the charts or comments or opinions that I make, you'll get notice of those. And then specifically when I make a trade, whether I buy a new trade or whether I close out of an old one, I will put it there first. Now, my trading has been very minimal lately. However, I think that's going to change and you'll probably notice a tone as I go through and tell you what I'm seeing in the markets right now. As far as me getting out of the dollar position, and this is related to the short on gold, both of those positions that I was in broke their long-term average that I was tracking. I think that that's primarily related to the fact that on on Thursday, the Bank of Japan did not devaluate the yen. Now, a lot of people were anticipating that. I think that's something that has to occur. As you've heard me talk throughout the last probably 12 months or so, if not longer, I've talked about how we are in a currency war. There's an extreme slowdown in global growth and global trade. And the way for the more mercantilist type economies or the economies that rely on large exports of either finished goods or of commodities, the best way for them to compete is to have a weak local currency. So I still believe that Japan will further devaluate the yen, China will further devaluate their RMB, and Europe will further devaluate the euro. However, despite the fact that I believe those things, A key principle of well-steading is that you don't argue with the markets. And so while my positions were trading in a range that was acceptable to me, and even though I think that those positions over the long run are likely to move up, when they broke the predetermined trend line that I had set for them in in, in the case of both short gold and long U.S. dollar, these were long-term trend lines in the neighborhood of two to four years that I was looking at, when they broke those key support levels, I don't argue with the market. I don't look for specific reasons or excuses. I don't try and justify my thoughts. I simply sell the position and wait for more market information. 
So if it looks like the dollar eventually will move back up, I may buy back into a, an ETF that tracks that. But a key principle of being a successful trader is to mitigate your risk. And I think the best way to do that is to sell your stock when it breaks the key support level that you had in place, cut whatever loss or limit whatever profit you may have at that point, and then go back and reassess your models and your formulas, but you don't argue with the market. Now, speaking about arguing with the market, let's let the market talk to us and tell us what's going on. That's what I want to do in this episode. I'm going to provide you commentary here along the way as I point out what stocks and what sectors have been going up and coming down and why overall I remain extremely cautious and very concerned while this market has gone up well above the 2020 or so on the S&P 500 where I thought it was going to hit resistance. It also petered out at around 2100 and as I record this episode the S&P 500 closed on Friday at around 2065. So it's about 2% higher than the resistance level that I thought it was going to fall apart at a month and a half ago. And I don't claim to be able to predict the future or to be able to pick tops or bottoms. I try and make my money on the middle. And so what I was seeing at the end of last year and what I still see now as we're going into May is a very choppy market. And I think with a very limited upside, meaning that it's going to have to struggle quite a bit to get above that 2130 or so that we saw the market's high of 2015. And I really think that unless we see some major global expansion taking place, and this really has to emanate in China, unless that occurs, the only thing that I really see that's positioned to take this market above 2100 is some type of major government stimulus package. Now, whether that's the Federal Reserve coming in with another trillion or so dollars and launching a, a QE3 program, or whether this is some enhanced infrastructure shovel-ready projects that's enacted by the Congress, those are the type of stimulus that I see needed, this artificial external government stimuli to the economy to push it you know, into the new highs above 2100, because we're certainly not getting that with any type of organic growth within the economy. We're not seeing any productivity improvements. We're not seeing technology improvements. The economy just seems to be chugging along at about two and a quarter percent. And so we're most likely going to be trading in a range somewhere around that 2100 on the upside, 1800 on the downside. I personally think we need to break below that 1800, put some real fear into the economy, see some of these over leveraged companies default, go bankrupt, have a fire sale on assets. If that cleansing takes place, then we'll see some market consolidation down around, I don't know, 1600, 1700 on the S&P 500. And then I believe a really sharp upturn at that point to go on to truly new organic highs and some real growth in the U.S. economy. But with the stimulus, too big to fail policies that we currently have and that have been in place for you know more than a decade, that might not occur, at least not intentionally. We might get to a point where all the QE, all the quantitative easing, all the stimulus just gets to a point of diminishing returns where faith is lost in the system, where the central banks lose control, and then we get that bottoming out and that really good cleansing of the economy. I think a lot of this also is going to be predicated on who wins the U.S. presidential elections in November. I think Donald Trump has interjected a lot of uncertainty into things, if you go back um, not only a year ago, if you go back four months ago, people were still discounting him. No one thought he'd make it as far as he has. He's a real wild card, and I'm not making a value judgment one way or the other. 
I'm just saying that the elites and the establishment were counting on something like a Hillary Clinton or a Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or a Scott Walker. The establishment was expecting either a Tweedledee or Tweedledum. They didn't care which one they got, but what they may be ending up with is a Trump that could really throw a monkey wrench into things. Watch Donald Trump's poll numbers. If he does, in fact, become the Republican candidate and he starts beating Hillary Clinton in the polls, I think you're going to see much more volatility and instability in the markets. But that's down the road a ways, so we're not going to worry about that right now. What I do want to point out about the current market that we're in, and this is quite different than normal, how much of it is related to the malinvestments from the quantitative easing and the artificial low interest rates we have, well, we can debate that another day. But remember last year, for the first six months of the year, we had a very range-bound market where there was some great volatility from day to day or week to week. But the S&P 500 traded in a very tight range. It never got much below 2,000. It never got much above 2,100. And while the S&P 500 or the other indexes looked like they were fairly stable, we could see sector rotations where investors and Wall Street were moving out of some of the more risky stocks and moving into more of the safer or dividend-paying stocks. So the Russell 2000 was losing ground and fell apart before the major markets did. Now the Russell 2000 is the smaller cap stocks. That's where we have more risk. Some of the more risky areas of technology, the tech sector stocks, as well as like the biotech stocks, which tend to be very speculative in nature for these new drugs that are being invented that don't have FDA approval and don't have a proven track record or efficacy of the drug. Well, these are very speculative type investments, and you don't see investors moving into those type stocks when they're worried about the overall economy. And so we did see people pulling out of those. In fact, even though the indexes looked like they were holding up well last year, it really came down to a dozen stocks, a dozen very large cap stocks that held up the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And, of course, the Dow was all large, highly capitalized stocks. But you had big names on the Dow like Apple and Nike and a recovery in McDonald's, things like that that were holding up the Dow. And then as far as the technology stocks go, while many, many stocks were well below their 52-week average, you still had a group of stocks that were commonly referred to as FANG stocks. That was Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Then that FANG had different meanings. Uh, some of the A's, you know, you could have called it both Apple and Amazon for, for the A and for Netflix. Some people included Nike in that because Nike was doing so well. But for our purposes, we're just going to narrow down and call it, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Well, that handful of stocks broke down like the general market over the summer, but then they recovered very well. They reported very good profit earnings, and we had a lot of that enthusiasm that we often get when we're dealing with technology stocks where people stop looking at balance sheets and they start focusing on growth and new economy and what if and how this is a different type of growth and how it's affecting the economy in a new way. And so old evaluations don't matter. And so other than Apple, those key technology stocks or social media stocks, they were having extremely high valuations. And then little by little, those bubbles started popping. You remember last quarter, LinkedIn, which is, you know, the business version of Facebook, the business-to-business -business type community of Facebook. Well, I think on one Friday afternoon, when it announced poor earnings, LinkedIn dropped something like 48%. And now that we've just finished up April and first quarter earnings have come out for, for most companies, 
We're seeing more of these FANG stocks start to disintegrate. In fact, FANG is really, at this point, only FA, Facebook and Amazon. All the other stocks that were real high flyers just going back a few weeks ago or a few months ago, Google, Netflix, Nike, Apple, of course, Apple has been down for a while now, but they are all below their 50-day moving average. Only Facebook and Amazon reported really good positive earnings, and they remain above their 50-day moving average. I'm not going to go into the shenanigans that we see in the balance sheet engineering that takes place at Amazon. I, I will tell you that Facebook, to my knowledge, reports everything on a gap earning basis. That's general accepted accounting practices. Facebook seems to be pretty straightforward with their announcements, and so their profitability is believable. That's not the case with Amazon. And just to give you a quick illustration, I'm sure many of you last week saw the very positive earnings announcement that came out from LinkedIn. I think it came out on Thursday. And remember, this is a stock that last quarter when they announced poor earnings, they dropped something like 48% in one day. Well, if you were following LinkedIn last week, you saw that they just had fantastic earnings. The headlines were constantly telling us about how they, they beat Q1 earnings and they beat estimates and, you know, year over year, quarter over quarter, all these comps were better. But, and this is why I always caution you about reading beyond the headlines, going into the primary data source and looking at the numbers and then making up your own evaluations, thinking for yourself. Remember that these analysts are constantly revising their numbers and they hold back. It's to the company's benefits to sandbag. And so that's why every time earnings announcements come out, we hear that 68% or 78% of companies beat the estimates. Well, that's because the estimates are always revised down and they're too low. So you don't want to really pay attention to the headlines. Think of wealth building principle number eight about understanding propaganda and go in and dig into the numbers. I'll just point this out on LinkedIn, but it's there glaringly and many other companies as well. But last week, when all the headlines were telling you about how much money LinkedIn made, in fact, the, the one that I saw that really caused me to dig down into the numbers was that their income for the quarter had improved by $99 million. And when I started digging down into the numbers, I saw that that was on a non-GAAP reporting basis. So that was not using accepted accounting practices. When you looked at the gap number that they reported, they actually had a $46 million loss. Okay, so the headlines are talking about a $99 million profit, but the real gap number was a $46 million loss. Now, you can monkey around with those numbers so long, and you can play the financial balance sheet engineering game, but at some point, the music stops, and there's not enough chairs, and the suckers are left holding the bag. So what I'm saying here is be cautious, learn to read between the lines, don't just accept things at face value. And when you look beyond the headlines and you start looking at the sectors in this economy that are moving up and down, I think you still see a market in trouble. Today I'm just going to reserve my comments for the market in the United States. I think I can make this argument globally as well. But for now, just focusing on the United States and looking at the sector rotation that we've seen over these last two months when the market has performed extremely well. Remember, it did not go on to make all-time new highs. We petered out at about the same level where the sucker rally failed at the beginning of November. And although the indexes overall look like they're in fairly good shape, we are seeing things rolling over. The NASDAQ closed down below its 50-day moving average on Friday. 
The Russell 2000 is struggling with its 200-day moving average, and so it appears that investors are moving back towards less risky or what's perceived as safer stocks. Now, this is interesting because these were the favored positions that we saw back in February. Remember me talking about things like the tobacco stocks, things like Philip Morris, or some of the alcohol stocks like Constellation Brands. They were doing extremely well, not in terms of earnings. Their earnings hadn't changed, but the amount that investors were willing to pay for them, what we would call valuation expansion, that's what was occurring. These stocks that normally should be trading at, say, 18 times earnings, well, all of a sudden they're trading at 22 times earnings. Wall Street has to put their money somewhere. If they think they're going into troubled times, they're going to put it in consumer staples type stocks. That includes things like Clorox, Coca-Cola, Hershey's chocolate, Hormel meats, you know, things that people are buying on a day-in, day-out basis. Other areas like healthcare, that's considered a safe haven type investment because you know when someone has an appendicitis, it doesn't matter whether it's a recession or not, they have to go in and spend that money on health care. So earlier in the year, we saw a lot of money moving into those areas. And then after February 11th, when the commodities market started to increase, we saw more risk on. And although the general market came up, we saw more money going into things like emerging markets. And then in particular here in the U.S., what I'm going to call the dash for trash. People were starting to think that oil had bottomed out and that these commodity sectors and things like oil production, things that had been suffering so poorly since 2014, that maybe they had bottomed out. And even though many of these companies were still considered undercapitalized and at risk in terms of paying off their debt, investors no longer cared about that risk. And so they dashed into these companies. It was the dash for trash. And so going back about three, four weeks ago, we started really seeing the oil companies rising and the material companies as well. Freeport-McMoran that makes copper, uh, companies like Alcoa that make aluminum. Obviously, gold miners, gold producers were going up as the price of gold went up. We saw on the agricultural side, companies like uh, CF Industries, Monsanto, people that make fertilizers, industrial-type products for agriculture, their stocks were rising. The industrial material manufacturers like Air Products, Air Gas, Praxar, they all had a nice run-up for a couple weeks. Special chemical manufacturers like Ecolab, um, International Flavors, paint manufacturers like Sherwin-Williams, paper companies like West Rock or Avery Dennison or container packaging type materials, glass and metal uh, manufacturers that make packaging materials, Ball Corporation, Owens, Illinois, they were all doing well. And then all the specialty um, chemical manufacturers, DuPont, Dow, Eastman, PPG, all these material companies and about half of the industrial companies all started to do extremely well in this dash for trash. It was very counterintuitive to me because, again, we're not seeing the manufacturing base in the, in the U.S. economy pick up. We're seeing just overall GDP probably at somewhere around two and a quarter percent. Globally, we're only seeing around three percent growth. We're certainly not seeing a large uptick in any type of manufacturing or commodity usage um, in the global economy, specifically not in China. 
And yet all these material companies and about half of the industrial companies started to see some significant moves in their stock price. This was really counterintuitive to me. At the same time, we were seeing energy prices go up because the way I would look at that is that, yes, even though petroleum and gasoline prices might be recovering, well, these uh, material manufacturers all use energy in their products. So if their natural gas and their petroleum costs are going up, and they appear to be in a stagnant market where they don't have pricing power passing on price to their customers, and we don't see a general increase in the economy anyways, well, how can material stocks keep rising at the same time their energy prices would be going up? In an economy where we just have very low inflation, that didn't seem to make sense. And we are seeing that falling apart now. Energy stocks are still doing very well, most of them anyways. And as I record this podcast, uh, West Texas Intermediate Oil, the petroleum for the U.S. is at about $45.50. So much higher than I think it should be. I really do think that given the supply that we're seeing and the, the glut that continues, the fact that OPEC, Russia, none of these major oil producing economies are talking about decreasing their production. They're all talking about either keeping it at current levels or exceeding it. Well, it's hard to believe that oil can stay above $45 in that kind of an environment. I would think we're going back to somewhere in the 30s. But oil and petroleum and energy stocks right now are holding up. We are seeing that dash for trash starting to fade when we look at the industrials and the materials sector, though. Before I move on, I do want to mention this, though, about ExxonMobil. When they reported last week, they had something like a 68% decrease in profits. I think the headlines were saying that this was the worst that we'd seen since like 1999 or something. The key point to all this, and again, it wasn't in the headlines. You had to dig down in the numbers to see it. But what really jumped out to me in the reports from ExxonMobil was that their overall oil production increased over 2% last quarter. So remember, these shutdowns that we're seeing are with the shale oil, the very high-cost producers. And as this oil gets back up to $45 and $50, and if it gets to $60, that's going to keep those shale oil producers in business. Now, for this oil glut to truly be over, for us to see oil bottom out and be able to go on to create healthy profits, I think we have to let these high-cost producers of oil go bankrupt, go out of business, default on their loans, and that's going to create pain for them. It's going to create pain for their local communities. It's going to create pain for the investors and the banks that finance that expansion. But that is a cleansing that I think needs to take place. I was encouraged. I thought we might have seen that take place when oil started to dip down at to $27 a barrel and had it gone down into the low 20s or maybe even $18 a barrel for a brief period of time. We would have seen a capitulation and we would have seen these high oil producing companies go bankrupt. They would have capitulated and we could have reshuffled the deck at that point. But right now with petroleum prices back up, these companies can go out, they can hedge their positions, they can buy long-term puts, and they can be zombie companies and stay around to continue to challenge oil prices. And again, this is one of the reasons why I don't think we've seen a bottom in oil prices, not yet. But oil price is so important because there's been a direct correlation between the movement of oil and the movement of the S&P 500. We are seeing that start to break down where oil prices are still going up and the S&P appears to be coming down. So watch that correlation and see how it plays out. 
Now, as far as specific market segments and the rotation that we're seeing in and out of high risk and low risk sectors or industry, I do want to emphasize that Dash for Trash looks like it's coming to an end. This week, we not only saw the markets down, but we saw a strong movement back into the safe type investments. So the overall best sector for this week was utility stocks. So nearly across the board, whether it was an electric company or a water utility, all those stocks did well this week. So, you know, American Electric Power, Southern Company, Con Edison, Duke Energy. We're seeing that risk-off trade. Wall Street is moving back towards these stable companies, or I should say companies that are perceived as being stable, that pay a nice dividend. That's where most of the money went this week. And then that was followed by consumer staple type companies. So things that are categorized as consumer staples on the S&P 500, things like Archer Daniel Midland, Colgate Palmolive, Clorox, Campbell's Soup, General Mills, Hormel Foods, Hershey's Chocolate, uh, Kellogg's, McCormick, Tyson Foods, Dr. Pepper, Pepsi, Coca-Cola. Those consumer staple stocks all finished out the week on either a high note or at least above their five-day moving average. So that's a good sign for those more mature, stable-type stocks that generally have a low beta and don't move around a great deal. Um, you know, Philip Morris, Altria Group, Reynolds America, all those tobacco stocks, they also did very nicely last week. And these were stocks that were starting to see a decline when we looked back three weeks ago. So that risk-off is definitely seems to be moving back in. Wall Street appears to be concerned about more risky investments, and they're moving back into these dividend-paying utility and consumer staple stocks. Now, I do want to point out, uh, although you keep hearing in the news about how we have low interest rates, the American consumer is still doing very well. They're continuing to spend. We're still seeing a good real estate market. Wages are going up. Unemployment is down to stable. Well, if that were all true, then you would see Wall Street continuing their love affair with consumer discretionaries because consumer discretionaries have been a very strong part of this market. You remember names like Nike, Starbucks, the cruise lines like Royal Caribbean, Carnival, Home Depot, Lowe's, all doing extremely well because the thought was that, hey, the consumer still has money, they're spending. There was even a really good recovery going on in retail stocks. You remember how well Walmart has done since about October of last year. Well, on Friday, those retail stocks fell apart, and it wasn't just Walmart. Nordstrom's, Macy's, Kohl's, Target, across the board, they all did really poorly. I don't have the charts up in front of me, but I believe the vast majority of them all broke down, gapped down below their 50-day moving average. So again, that tells me that Wall Street is concerned that maybe even their favored sector, that consumer discretionary, that that's not faring too well. So as to this fading of the dash to trash, where I see the markets breaking down the most as we closed out last week, those material stocks that had been doing very well for a, about a three-week run, they seem to have been faring about the worst, along with the financial sector. The banks had pretty much ridden that same momentum up. Again, this is probably related to that overall rise in commodity prices where the banks had been beaten down. And if oil is recovering and we're not going to see the bankruptcies and defaults in the oil and energy sector, then that means that the banking community will be more stable. Well, you know, so they had risen for about three weeks. Well, financial stocks were hit hard this past week. And then the other player that took it really hard also 
was energy. Now, this is hard to see because so many of the energy stocks are still up, and with oil at over $45 a barrel, that's understandable. But again, if you dig down into the numbers and you look at the highs that were reached two or three weeks ago versus the lows that we started to see this week, we definitely see the energy sector taking a hit. So in the energy sector or the you know oil and gas industry, stocks that closed out the week worse than they had the previous week or two, Chevron fits into that category. Hess Corporation, Anadarko, Devon Energy, Apache Corporation, Marathon, Newfield Exploration, Kinder Morgan, and then really all of the gas refineries, the Tesseros, the Valero, pipeline companies like Columbia, all of those energy companies that have been doing so well over the last eight weeks, and even just as recently as a week ago, well, they all started to fall back and move down this week. And so I would be cautious and concerned that those remaining stocks in the energy sector will fall apart as well. So that would include companies like ExxonMobil, Murphy's Oil, Chesapeake Energy, Diamond Offshore, Transocean, Baker Hughes, Halliburton, Schlumberger, Cabot Oil, ConocoPhillips. These are all energy-related companies that have yet to pull back, but I personally do anticipate them to drop back as well. Now, I know there are still plenty of stocks that are doing well out there. The S&P is right around that 2065 level, so we're not talking recession or economic collapse. We're certainly well off the lows of 1800 that we had just back in February. So I'm not telling you to bury your money in the backyard. I'm just saying move forward with caution. Yes, there are many segments of the economy that are still holding up. There are many individual stocks that are that are doing well. And in fact, my watch list is growing with specific targeted exchange-traded funds that are in niche areas that I'm looking at, as well as some individual stocks. I'm starting to like some of the charts that I see. But I do remain very concerned about an overall pullback. When you look at the headlines and you hear how over 70% of companies are beating their earnings estimates and that we're only 3% off of an all-time high, I think it just builds a false sense of security. Because while it's true that we are only 3% off of an all-time high, there are many, many sectors and individual stocks that make up the S&P 500 that should be performing much better than they are if we were in such a broad recovery. And so I don't want to end this podcast on a negative note, but I do want to run down a list here and give you an idea of how poorly many stocks are doing. And I want to do that because I think it's an alternative to what you're hearing in the headlines. So I'm going to run down a list of individual sectors of the economy, and I'm not going to be pulling obscure stocks out out of the list. I'll run down a list of S&P 500 large cap stocks that just about anybody should be familiar with. And as I run down these numbers, notice how they're definitely in correction territory, being down, you know, as much as 10%, if not in bear market territory, where they're down over 20%. So let's start off with the beloved technology sector. And and certainly you've heard me say that the three most important segments of any economy are technology, energy, and finance. And technology has certainly held up extremely well over these past few years. But let's just run down a list here. Micron technology down 63% from its 52-week high. All these numbers are going to quote are numbers that they're off their 52-week high. So Western Digital, almost 58% off its 52-week high. Skyworks, down over 40%. 
Acamol Technologies down almost 35%. Qualcomm down almost 27%. HP down over 21.5%. Yahoo down almost 19%. Symantec down well over 18.5%. Xerox down almost 17%. Analog devices down almost 16.5%. And even the most favored technology stocks here just in, in recent weeks or recent months, Google down well over 12.5% from its 52-week high. Microsoft, you know, it had recovered very nicely. Well, Microsoft is down over 12%. These are all in correction or bear market territories. This is a leading segment of the economy. That's a concern. Let's move on to healthcare, specifically biotechnology. Celgene, down over 26.5%. Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, down nearly 38%. Alexion Pharmaceuticals, down nearly 33.5%. Amgen, one of the better ones in the category, down only 11.5%. Oh, and I almost forgot Gilead. Speaking of biotechs, you know, Gilead has been an awesome performing stock for on and off the last decade or so. Early last year was doing extremely well. Gilead down over 27.5% from its 52-week high. Now, that was the biotechs. They do tend to be a riskier group. But what about, you know, more conservative things like drug manufacturers? Well, Eli Lilly down over 17.5%. Allergan, a generic drug maker, down nearly 36.5%. Mylan, another uh, generic drug manufacturer, down over 44.5%. So things still not good in healthcare, despite the fact that we have seen some recovery there where some of the risk off was trying to take place, where people were moving into more consumer stable type products. Some of these healthcare companies have actually improved even with those bad of numbers. You heard me mention a little bit ago about how poorly retail had done this week. Well, all sectors there are getting hit. As far as apparel stores, the gap down over 41%. Nordstrom's down over 30%, L Brands down almost 20%. Department stores, Macy's down almost 45% from its 52-week high. Walmart down over 14%, Costco down over 12%, Whole Foods down nearly 40%, Kroger's down almost 17%. Not good on the high end of the uh, spectrum either. Tiffany and Company down almost 25%. Uh, casinos like Wynn Resorts down 24%, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines down nearly 25%, even Starbucks down over 11.5%. Now, even when we look at that segment that's doing so well, the um, oil and the energy companies, still very much in correction or bear market territory. ConocoPhillips still down over 27.5% from its 52-week high. EOG Resources down almost 18% from its 52-week high. Anadarko Petroleum down over 44% from the 52-week high. Schlumberger down 13%. Halliburton down about 16%. We're running out of time here. I don't want to go into all the financials. You know, again, some of the financials have performed better. But again, a lot of these big players, what you would think would be companies in a leadership position with a market that's doing so well. They are in correction or bear market territory. Goldman Sachs down over 24% from its 52-week high. American Express down almost 19% from its 52-week high. Morgan Stanley down nearly 33%.
from its 52-week high. MetLife, down over 20%. Capital One Finance, down over 20%. Prudential, down about 14%. State Street, down 22%. Bank of America, down almost 20.5%. Citigroup, down nearly 24%. These are all from their 52-week highs. These are correction to bear market type territory. You shouldn't see Fortune 500 leadership performing so abysmally if we were having the broad recovery that's being portrayed in the headlines. Now, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I'm not concerned about an economic collapse or us falling into some Great Depression. But what I am saying is that these markets are 3% off of all-time highs. It wouldn't be a bad time to maybe take some profits in areas that you've done well in, build a cash position, and be ready to take either long or short positions as this market readjusts and we go into a more of a traditional summer slowdown period. I'm not offering advice or recommendations. I'm just telling you that's where my mindset is. That's what I'm thinking. Hey, stick around. Come back and listen to other episodes. You'll find out whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, and you'll find out what I'm doing with my money. And so, until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano, Wishing you the very best of returns.